Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Uh, Gord, great to uh, be able to catch up with you. So appreciate your time. And um, there's certainly a lot going on in the markets right now. Of course, we've seen the markets down yesterday by about 2% on concerns out of China with Evergrande. Um, and then we've got the Fed meeting tomorrow. Maybe give us a little bit of perspective in terms of, um, you know, what you think is a real concern or perhaps not. Well, I, I guess right now, and I mean, every, every time uh, I answer this question throughout, throughout time, the, the, the issues of the day uh, really seem to resonate, Catherine, and, and the, the, the test of, of their importance is perhaps that uh, four, five, eight months later, do you remember those issues? And more specifically, do you remember the timing? And often the answer is no. So they tend to be quite transitory. But, you know, without question, there are a lot of overhanging issues to today's market. And, and obviously the biggie is, is COVID and, and the, the, the Delta uh, variant and, and how long it's going to stick around. And as it relates, not to just health, but to the economy and the markets, uh, is the dislocation that we're seeing uh, so evident on the supply side and the demand side going to work its way through quickly or is it going to be uh, more difficult to get through it all? And then, as you mentioned, um, you know, we've got the Fed and, and, the, and monetary policy and the, and the Fed's desire, and I think they telegraphed it quite well to raise uh, uh, interest rates or at least to start uh, uh, tapering um, from their $120 billion a month quantitative easing program uh, relatively soon. They haven't given us an exact date, but we know that it's coming and the market is digesting that. Uh, and then, of course, on the fiscal side, we've got uh, a debt ceiling debate and, and we've, we've seen that movie before. And I fully expect that that's going to create some angst in the market, although these things always get solved. Uh, it's just the negotiation process that has to take place, which takes us to the 11th hour of uh, stonewalling and threatening. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, we've got China and, and uh, possible burgeoning uh, issues with credit quality of a major uh, property developer. Uh, China is, is, is making some pretty big overtures in terms of societal changes, which I think have some reach, but not, not huge reach, to be honest with you. Uh, what have I forgotten, Catherine? There's certainly more. Well, but, there is but, more, and I'm I'm almost surprised at myself that I didn't start with this, but I, there's obviously a reason, uh, which is the Canadian elections, which just ended last night. I did election sure. coverage for the news forum for six hours, and uh, um, it, and it's so status quo. Um, you know, although we are, you know, we just spent six hundred million dollars on the election, mm -hmm. so um, I didn't start with that. But what do you make of it? Well, you spent six hours and they spent $600 million and it was all for three, three seats on the, on the liberal side. So I think as a lot of people thought uh, this was going to 
basically end up in a, in a, in a stalemate. I, uh, people other than myself certainly know this area better, but it, it seemed to me that the conservative, uh, the right wing conservative element uh, sort of stole some of the thunder from the conservatives and didn't allow them to make it a little closer. I think there was a backlash against uh, Trudeau uh, for calling the election. Uh, I don't think that he really looked that good uh, in, in posturing uh, for a, a, a new government in the middle of, of the, uh, the election, and that was discussed uh, almost ad nauseum. But here we are, uh, how it affects Markets, I'd say not very much. We didn't see much move in the, in the Canadian dollar. It firmed a little bit, uh, but uh, I, I don't think it's going to have any effect on world markets or the U.S. market. Mm -hmm. and, and so when you take a look at those major drivers of, um, you know, market sentiment, but also, of course, you know, what we end up seeing from an economic perspective, you know, specifically China, and uh, perhaps some of the slowdown that they're seeing and whether or not there's going to be credit qualities with this property developer. Um, where, where does that leave you in terms of your client's money and, you know, perhaps how much risk you want on, you know, given the fact that there's not a lot of other places to invest, Tina, there's no alternative, or, or is now the time or have you been taking money off the table, just given the fact that all of those issues are at play and also, of course, we've got seasonality. Well, the way we, we uh, run our, our client accounts is uh, each client has a risk reward uh, profile that's defined through an investment policy statement. And 95% and plus of our clients are balanced in nature, which means that they have some component of, of fixed income, uh, some U.S. securities and some Canadian securities. Uh, and within those portfolios, the Canadian and the U.S. side, as you mentioned, uh, we, can, we can certainly flavor those uh, one way or another, depending on where we think we are. So it's sort of a tactical flavoring within a strategic uh, uh, approach. Um, we've for well over a year, Catherine, taken a, um, a barbell approach uh, within the US portfolio where uh, we have some value, some growth, we have some risk on, some more stable uh, components and it's worked quite well uh, because as you know, uh, the market's been a little schizophrenic. It doesn't really know what it wants to reward. Uh, and it flips from one area to the next, depending on, on what day it is or what week it is. Uh, so what, what our approach has done is really smooth the ride. It's decreased the volatility. Uh, and, uh, and it's been, been quite good. We've added some alpha as well. Uh, I'd say that, that where we are right now, uh, we think that we're uh, pretty much in the, in the midst of a of, a, of an economic cycle, an expansionary cycle. I don't think we're in the late innings. I'd say we're probably in the middle innings of that. Uh, the the uh, health issues that, that the uh, society is experiencing and their effect on the economy may have an effect of, of elongating that cycle, uh, but uh, there's lots of good things yet to happen in the cycle. Uh, we've got to, of course, uh, restock. Uh, We've, we've got an inventory restocking that's, that has to happen. Uh, we, we see huge supply disruptions and, and demand uh, disruptions. They have to settle out. And we really uh, aren't in a position, I think, to, to try to take every piece of economic uh, data and draw conclusions from it because it's all over the place. 
Hmm. One month we see uh, like really strong retail sales like we saw last month that, that blew away the estimate. Well, next month it might be the exact reverse because as we know, uh, Delta, the Delta variant has, has changed buying, power, pa buying patterns. So, so we tend not to uh, make a lot of changes based on uh, different data points. We just sort of let ourselves be taken with good companies that we know uh, eventually will outperform not only their own history, but their peer group and, and the, and the uh, market as a whole. And Gord, I should ask as well, um, for your clients, it's, it's funny when you do interviews on TV and you know, you've got like maybe five to six, maybe seven minutes, depending. Um, you know, I'm not aware, uh, but I'm always, I always like to understand how people's firms operate for their clients. Uh, in other words, do you run pooled funds or are they segregated client accounts whereby, so that everybody knows what that means, you know, if you have a segregated account, you actually own stock XYZ as opposed to it being pooled and you own a unit. Exactly, and, and at this point it is the latter, Catherine. Uh, uh, every, every individual client owns uh, securities, there's no mutualization, no, no pooling of, of assets. Now, uh, if, a, if a client A owns, uh, 30% of their portfolio in the U.S. market and client B owns 50%, obviously they own more, client B owns more of the, of the U.S. portfolio, but the names are the same. So every client who has a, a participation on the U.S. side will own the same portfolio uh, just in, in different uh, uh, percentages, different weighting uh, based on their asset mix. Okay, but just to be clear, because um, you said the latter, and I think I, I think I said that segregated versus pooled. Yes. It, it, it is segregated. They own they own the stock. Correct. Correct. Okay. Now, now uh, we are in the process of registering across the country as an investment fund manager, and that is going to allow us to offer a a, a pool, uh, and I expect early in two thousand twenty two to be able to announce that, that uh, uh, we have a pool for people with uh, lower amounts of, of money. Uh, our segregated accounts, our individual accounts uh, now start at $500,000. Uh, and of course there are people out there, a lot of people out there with 300,000 or 200,000 or 400,000 who would like to participate uh, in good read management but can't right now. Uh, and we're we're off. We're going to set up a pool to accommodate uh, those individuals, and it will be a balanced approach, Catherine, so that uh, it will uh, mirror the 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 average or the median uh, composition of our uh, segregated accounts on a balanced basis. Got it. And um, just one more follow-up question: Then will that be an actual fund, or will you structure it as an ETF? No, it'll be an actual fund. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, it will be available, uh, I anticipate, uh, through our website, through a portal. Uh, okay. And, uh, but it'll also, uh, even though it will be a, a pool, you will own units in a pool, it will be viewed as a segregated account. So, so it'll be viewed as a high net worth account. Uh, there will be, a, you know, the normal account opening, KYC, know your client obligations on our part. And and fiduciary responsibilities on suitability on our part. Uh, but uh, 
as I say, it'll, it'll be available to people with, with uh, lesser amounts of, uh, of capital. Got it. Um, and just for people to understand, segregated accounts tend to have higher costs associated with them in terms of just op the operations um, for, versus pooled. Um, well, uh, we, we can operate pretty, pretty efficiently. Our, our uh, fees start at one and a quarter percent. Uh, and once uh, clients get to oh the five million dollar mark uh, with us, Catherine, they're they're uh, well below one percent. So okay. pretty pretty efficient. Yeah. And the other thing that that it offers is that in uh, uh, accounts that uh, are non RSP or RIF accounts, not non uh, 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 term, uh, um, registered registered accounts. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, non registered accounts, the, the fees are tax deductible. Against Got it. So, so yeah. you know, it, it, it gets to be quite, uh, quite efficient. Yeah. And I didn't even mean it, the cost to the client. I meant it just operating from a um, regulatory perspective, but, mm -hmm. but anyway, that's in the weeds. Let, let's, uh, let's talk a lot about a few stocks um, that you brought to us today in terms of why you, why you like them, why they're in your client's portfolios. And let's start with Freeport Macquarie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very large copper producer, of course. And the thing that that drew me to Freeport, well, there are a couple of, of, of things. One is that uh, from an operating standpoint, uh, their Indonesian mine, Grasberg, uh, is now at 100% uh, efficiency. It's producing at 100% capacity. Uh, so they're producing uh, large amounts of copper. Uh, in the United States alone, they're producing a, you know, a million uh, pounds of, uh, of uh, uh, copper a year. Uh, very profitable uh, at uh, current uh, copper prices, which are just north of $4 a pound. Uh, they're going to produce probably 12 to $13 billion of, of, uh, of EBITDA. Uh, and uh, at current prices, they're trading at roughly uh, four times enterprise value to EBITDA. So uh, very, very attractive from a valuation standpoint. Why is it still so attractive? I mean, I feel as though investors have been looking at this commodity cycle and looking at, in terms of wanting to buy into it, things got legs. Obviously, you're seeing that in the energy sector. Um, copper, you know, is, is always a bit of a leading indicator in terms of where we're going on the global growth scale. And, you know, obviously that's been put into question given the COVID uh, as well as Delta and also China slowing down. But I still feel as though there's a lot of people who believe in what you're suggesting, which is supply shortages might elongate this business cycle. So why is it then that Freeport is trading at an attractive valuation? Well, good question. We think it should be trading at a, at a more attractive uh, or a higher price, uh, less attractive valuation. And part of the reason we think that is, is the secular story. And that is that copper, unlike a lot of base metals, isn't uh, additive to a, a polluting world. Uh, it's really a, a, a green metal, if you want to think of it that way. 70% uh, of the copper produced will be used uh, in, in uh, applications that will deliver electricity, uh, an electric car uses four times uh, the copper that a gas-powered car uses, um, gas or turbines, uh, wind turbines. Uh, many, many applications, of course, use, use copper. So we think there's a, a, a secular story here uh, that's underappreciated. Hmm. Um, and 
when you think about where the true demand is coming from, um, is it going to be driven by China? I don't think it'll be driven by China. I think China is certainly a very big player. And I think that um, has added to some of the weakness that we've seen in the whole metals complex uh, recently. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it has, it has uh, uh, legs uh, throughout the world, uh, but China is certainly a very big economy. So it's gonna be a big, uh, a big buyer of, of copper and other base metals. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Google as well. This is another name that you like. And, you know, it, it's interesting when you take a look at some of the FANG or, you know, large cap tech, mega cap tech companies over the past year or so. And, um, you know, depending on what's going on in the market and looking at valuations, and also, of course, concerns surrounding regulatory scrutiny of big tech. Um, they've kind of moved sideways or down um, on some days when growth, you know, when people understand that growth can be scarce, then they get a nice pickup. But what's the latest with Google in terms of, um, let's start with investor sentiment surrounding the stock. Well, uh, you know, Google has had a very good run uh, at $2,800. It wasn't that long ago that it was half that price. And so it's, it's, it's done, done quite well, but there's, there's been some catch up there because, you know, a lot of people are in, in kind of a knee jerk way, uh, talk about in commentators, I hear them on, on television all the time say, well, those expensive fang stocks or those expensive tech stocks. And I always bristle a little bit because Google this year will make over a hundred dollars a share in earnings. And at, at $2,800, the math is pretty easy. Uh, it's, it's trading at 28 times earnings. So maybe a 20%, 30% premium to the market, but it's growing at, at uh, low 20s to 25% annually, revenue, um, earnings and cash flow. So it's growing at many times the rate that the average company in America is growing. And we all know from compounding exercises and so on that, that if a company or anything grows at 25%, it doesn't take long to grow into evaluation. So 25% grower will, will double your, your result every three years. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a great company and it's not expensive. So, uh, you know, I think there's, there's a couple of reasons why uh, you mentioned one of them and that's the regulatory overhang. Uh, we've looked at that extensively because we also own Facebook and we also own Apple, uh, we own Amazon. Uh, and, and they're all sort of under the same umbrella of, of sort of regulatory scrutiny. But our conclusion is that, you know, regardless of, of, of what happens, there's still great value for stakeholders there. So if you say, well, what if they were to break up one of these companies? Well, there's a lot of studies out there that say, well, they'd be worth more uh, as, as parts of a whole. Uh, are they going to become more, uh, or they're going to have restricted covenants put on them. People like these, these companies, you know, everybody says, well, you know, everybody's a, a Facebook hater, but they've got 2.8 billion monthly average users. Somebody likes them. So, so the users tend to tend to like them. Uh, if you, if you listen to the arguments, uh, it seems that there's, there's strong arguments on both sides, but for exactly the opposite reasons. You listen to a Republican talk about Facebook uh, and the argument is, you know, they're, they're, they're censors. And you listen to a Democrat talk about Facebook and the argument is they don't police enough. 
So right. two you know, completely different arguments, but both of them are negative on Facebook. So you know, Facebook or Alphabet, any of these, it's new technology. As a society, we're trying to figure out uh, how to responsibly uh, use these companies, how to responsibly police these companies. And I think we'll get it. But uh, uh, the one thing I'm pretty sure is that they're going to be around for a good long time because the model is just so effective. Well, and that was going to be my next question as well, because I think sometimes in terms of how long they'll be around and I mean, they might be around for a long time, but then it does come down to what's the price that you want to pay. And, you know, I hear you at 28 times, that's not expensive. It's, you know, if it's a growing so significantly trading at a 30% premium to the market value, it doesn't sound too extreme, particularly given the era prior to the tech boom busting when the premiums to the market multiples for some of these large cap tech companies were so significant. I think in many cases, really? 70, 80%. But that is, that is the concern surrounding some of these big tech companies that trade at a premium, the Amazons, Facebooks, Googles of the world, not so much Apple, but you know, I think back to Cisco and Microsoft and it, you know, those stocks did nothing for a decade. Is yeah. there any risk in making, you know, in, in looking at what happened to mega cap tech back in the early 2000s to now, because that is one of the pushbacks that people will talk about as it relates to these current tech companies. And, and I think that you absolutely should be looking at that and learning from history. And there are companies out there that traded extreme multiples. I think of a lot of the fintech uh, stocks uh, out there that do trade at, I'll, I'll say it's Cisco-like or, or Microsoft-like turn of the century multiples. I think Cisco got up to close to a hundred times earnings. Yeah. Uh, and Sun Microsystems got way up there and Microsoft got way up there. So uh, we, we tend uh, not to buy uh, companies that we think are priced for so far into the future that uh, you lose vis visibility. But the companies that, that, that we do own in the, in the tech or the, or the communication services side uh, have much more reasonable valuations, yet we're not giving up uh, a, a ton on the on the growth side. So we're, we're very, very comfortable owning these companies, but you're right, you continually have to challenge your side or challenge yourself from both the fundamental side uh, and the, the, the valuation side. Okay, um, important point to make, and, and especially too when we think about tech, uh, you know, some of the cloud computing companies that also have, you know, extended valuations. It doesn't sound like you're in that area. Uh, no, no. And, yeah. and, you know, you look at, and often these, some of these are very, very exciting companies. Take a company like Palantir, uh, you know, big data, uh, U.S. government is, is their primary uh, client. Uh, there's a, a huge future for this but they're trading at 30 times revenue. Right. From my revenue, not earnings, to be clear. Not earnings, not <laughs> yeah. revenue. revenue. They don't Important have distinction. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, to your point, I think, you know, you have to make sure, you have to ensure that, that, that you're making a, 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 a true value decision. And it's not just, let's get excited about this technology and buy it at any price. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you know, you go into your everyday life and, and uh, outside of the market. And we do valuation analysis all day, every day. 
whether we're in a clothing store or a restaurant, uh, and we can absolutely love a piece of clothing and, and like everything about it, what it's made of, how it fits us and everything else, but at a certain price, we will not buy it. Uh, right. Conversely, if it's at what we view as a very attractive price, we may walk out of the store with two of those articles. So, so we do valuation analysis all the time, every day in our lives, and you have to do it in the market as well. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, let's take a look at one of the big banks in the United States. Um, JP Morgan is on your buy list or a name that you would you know, be recommending for, for clients today. Um, I always think it's interesting to take a look at the, the big US banks. Everybody always seems to have their favorites, whether it's JP Morgan, Bank of America, or Citi. Uh, why is it JP Morgan for you? Well, uh, full disclosure, we also own Bank of America. We, we don't own Citi. Okay. Uh, but uh, JP Morgan is the, the granddaddy of the, of the money center banks. Uh, I would argue probably the highest quality banking franchise in the world. Uh, uh, they do extremely well in a lot, in a lot of different uh, settings. Uh, right now, uh, they're doing extremely well uh, because of their capital markets and investment banking business. The capital markets are on fire. Uh, there's huge liquidity out there, as you know, Catherine. And, and uh, you know, a lot of the, the big uh, banks are, are participating in, in deal flow. Uh, so that's where they're making their money. Where they're not making their money is in loan growth. And that's because of COVID and the stutter step recovery from an economic standpoint. So they're not seeing a lot of loan growth. They're also not making a lot of money on spreads. Uh, the interest rates are low and the yield curve is relatively flat. So they don't get the, the uh, margin spreads that sometimes they do in, mm -hmm. in a cycle. But the, one of the reasons that we, we particularly like JP Morgan is that uh, everybody went into the pandemic thinking, wow, this is going to be incredibly difficult for businesses and individuals. And JP Morgan took all kinds of reserves. You know, the reserves got up to, I think, $35 billion uh, in anticipation of write-offs based on failing businesses and failing individual finances. And, and of course, what we saw worldwide uh, was that governments basically socialized all of that debt. They took people and businesses off that debt through government programs and in Canada serve and, and, and different programs for businesses. Uh, and and uh, uh, JP Morgan among all of the banks uh, was sitting with all of these reserves that they were over reserved. So throughout 2021, they've been releasing those reserves back into income. So it's propped up the income. So uh, that's not an issue. Mm -hmm. um, as I mentioned, capital markets are doing great. Uh, and at some point, uh, interest rates are gonna rise. Uh, so they'll get a bit of a, a boost from a, um, a, uh, a margin, an interest margin uh, business. Mm -hmm. Loan growth, I think, will start to improve as the economy comes out of this and people have more confidence to borrow money. So there's a lot of ways they can win uh, in a lot of different settings. And, and for that reason, we like JP Morgan and, and we also like uh, Bank of America. And just to pick up, pick up on the comment about the strength that we're seeing in capital markets, um, you know, certainly the IPO calendar has been massive over the past year. And I'm just wondering um, if, if you've 
wanted to get any direct exposure to more um, of a you know pure play investment bank like a Goldman Sachs. You know, we think of Morgan Stanley as an investment bank as well, which they have a great investment banking franchise, but they also have a huge wealth management business. So um, have you played any of uh, any of the more pure plays? Well, we do own Morgan Stanley as well. Uh, okay. and, and, you know, I like I like Goldman Sachs. Uh, it it uh, uh, certainly pops up on our screens on a regular basis. One of the things that uh, Morgan Stanley, as given you mentioned it, does for you is, as you mentioned, it, it also has that, that uh, wealth management side. And James Gorman, who runs uh, Morgan Stanley, uh, has been very active. Uh, he bought uh, Eaton Vance, he bought E-Trade, to the point where now, um, on a, a revenue basis, uh, investment uh, wealth management uh, makes up more than 50% of their revenues. So it gives you a bit of a hedge uh, mm -hmm. against that capital markets business because as you know capital markets business can come and go and and uh, uh, we like the idea of having uh, a little bit of a hedge uh, with with Morgan Stanley. Understood um, and then just lastly here you know um, we're very focused on well we have been focused when, when we look at the auto sector on um, whether it's going to be traditional autos or electric vehicles. And then, of course, over the past couple of years, you've had more of the traditional players move into EV. And, and there's still a real debate in terms of whether or not they'll be able to be successful at that versus a Tesla. Um, and GM is a, is a name that you're suggesting to investors today. Why is that? Oh, we're very excited about GM. We think they're them, uh, GM and Ford, uh, much understood, misunderstood. We own GM, we did peer comparisons and, and chose GM over Ford for a variety of reasons. But uh, as you mentioned, they're getting into the electrification uh, process. By 2030, I believe it is, 40% of their, their fleet will be electrified. Uh, they are uh, setting up to be very uh, profitable, uh, even, even starting next year. They're gonna produce $20 billion of cash flow Catherine, and, and this is on a about $75 billion market cap. Uh, and, and people aren't even talking about the fact that they own 85% of Cruise, which is an autonomous vehicle program, which uh, has been uh, extremely successful. And there have been private players, or private players, outside players like Walmart and Microsoft making investments, small investments. But based on the valuation on those investments, Cruise is valued at about $30 billion and they own 80, GM was 85% of it. So what, 40% of their market cap uh, is covered by, by the value of Cruise. So uh, on a valuation basis, uh, uh, GM is, is trading right now at about six times enterprise value to EBITDA. Uh, just to do some comparisons, you mentioned Tesla, they trade at 95, enterprise, 95 times enterprise value to EBITDA. So it's a, it's a, you know, Tesla is a cult stock and, and uh, you know, you can think what you will about the quality of their product. But as we talked about earlier in the interview, you always have to do about uh, valuation analysis. And in, in my book, anyway, uh, Tesla gets a, a failing grade and, and uh, GM gets a, a well over a passing grade. Yeah, because we have to remember that so often, you know, there is a, rever a reversion to the mean. Uh, when it comes to valuations and you know you, you make money based on what you paid for a stock it's pretty it's pretty simple <laughs> so, 
I think. Um, Gord, we're going to leave it there. It's been great to be able to catch up with you and get your thoughts. Uh, appreciate well, your time you so as much, always. Cal. And yeah, I've too. enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. You too.